we, uh, the great part about these weekends is we get our thinking challenged. That's what it's about. And uh, Chris Benakis uh, is still here, but he came up to me. Where are you, Chris? Oh, he's hiding in the corner. First time I ever asked Chris to come to a conference was up in Lost Valley. And Walt was the speaker, as he was this weekend. And I can't remember who else was there. Was, was Jackson there that year? And who else? Uh, not sure. Those were the two, two main guys. Um, after the first year, Chris was very silent as we drove back down to the Colorado or to the Denver airport. And we kind of hugged each other and said goodbye. It was good to see you because we've known each other for, for, for a few years. And he uh, said thanks. He's a very gracious guy. And he said thanks. I had a good time. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me, et cetera, et cetera. And a couple months later, two or three months later, I got the little notice in the mail saying, if you want to go, you better let us know because, you know, it sells out all of that sort of thing. So I called Chris. I said, hey, buddy, you're not going to believe it. it's only been three months, but Lost Valley's coming again. Are you ready to go? He said, no. I said, well, he was still mad. He was still mad. He was still upset because of the challenging the paradigm. And he said it the best last night. It's fine for you to tell me about all the other babies in the room and how ugly they are, but don't you talk about my baby being ugly. And we hit some buttons last night. And I'm grateful for David for that, and I'd like to ask him to hit a few more. Good my back. Can I get a few volunteers to uh, look up passages? First John 4, 7, and actually, we'll do this whole group in First John. Somebody volunteer for me for First John 4, 7, 8. Okay, great. 7 and 8, 20 and 19 in, in the book of First John. Uh, how about Proverbs 19, 7? Thank you. Hebrews 6, 10. Thank you. First Corinthians 8, 12. Thank you. Um, on reserve, though we might not use it, Matthew 25, 31 and following. Thank you. Philippians 2, 3 to 5. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 to 33. Thank you. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. Anybody? 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. Thank you. Uh, and last, we may or may not use this, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. If you're shy, that's the one to pick for you. Great, thanks. Okay. Well, as Ed said, we did learn there is some interest in the, su in the subject of competition. But uh, since I kind of left the ball in the weeds last night, I'm going to ask for uh, a mulligan this morning. And uh, I'd like to start <laughs> at a little different place where I than where I left off. I will get back to it, though. That's a threat, not just a promise. On September 11th, among, among many things, I was impressed with the heroics of the firemen, the policemen, the rescue workers, as was the entire country, as they literally went into a building that would eventually kill them in order to rescue and save their fellow man. Profound expression of commitment, love, if you will. The source book that we keep referring to, the Bible, says there's no greater love 
than this, than that a, a man laid down his life for his brothers. And that's what we were seeing in essence, right? Is an expression of incredible sacrificial love. And as I watched that, among other things, I thought to myself, I'm so glad that the God that I put in that blank, the God that I worship, didn't just write that in his book, but he demonstrated it himself. The God that I worship, in the person of Jesus Christ, not only ran into the building to rescue innocent people and let the building fall on him, you know what he did even beyond that? He went in for the terrorist who was in the same building. Jesus Christ didn't only go for his brothers, if you will, he even went after people that hated him. So. It made me feel good that God isn't just sitting in heaven writing out, you know, great principles and legislation for me to follow when it comes to the subject of competition, for example. He doesn't just sit up in heaven and say, ah, here's, here's how I think I'd like you to behave in the competitive arena. In the person of Jesus Christ, who I understand to be God, he modeled it for me. Now, if you don't mind, and, I, and we are going to get there, I'd like to read something to you that I wrote a couple of days ago. And the only reason I'm reading it to you is because I'm afraid to commit it to memory. Uh, so just take a few minutes, if you don't mind. But it's about that model. Has it ever occurred to you that Jesus Christ was a loser? He won nothing. He beat no one. He didn't even earn a spot on Goldberg's list of leading rabbis. He lost his followers, he lost most of his friends, he lost in the court of public opinion, he lost in the trial for his life. During his execution, the religious and political suits stood around puffing their stogies, no offense, Ed, and they scorned, well, he saved others, but he couldn't save himself. Jesus was the loser king. He didn't start out that way. You know, at the beginning of the season, he came on like Tiger Woods at the U.S. Open. I mean, he was top-grade, first-round draft Messiah material. He exercised demons. He gave sight to the blind. He made the deaf hear. He made the lame walk. He fed the hungry. And when he spoke, you know, you could hear a yarmulke drop. Here was a rabbi people could finally throw their support behind. A fearless, wonder-working rabbi. And guess what? He was on their side. See, the Jews were tired of being the underdog. They were tired of looking up and seeing Rome's thumb. They'd had too many losing seasons. And then Jesus turns up, kind of like Robert Redford in The Natural, out of nowhere. And he shows the kind of muscle that just guarantees a winning season, maybe even undefeated. So they're excited. Initially, a lot of enthusiasm for Jesus. But what a disappointment. Turns out Jesus isn't really a team player after all. In fact, beating the Romans isn't even in the game plan. Evening the score is the last thing on Jesus' mind, not to mention winning anything. It seems Jesus is obsessed with the least, the little, the last, and the lost. Instead of one-upsmanship, his strategy is one-downsmanship. Instead of a race to the top, he seems to be racing to the bottom. Jesus, I would propose to you, was left-handed. 
in the sense that Martin, uh, Martin Luther used the term. Martin Luther suggested there are two kinds of intervention, two kinds of power, right-handed power and left-handed power. Right-handed power is direct, straight-line power. In other words, it's using the force you need to get the results you want. Did you get that? It's using the force you need to get the results you want. Most things in the world are accomplished by left-handed power, by right-handed power. Direct, cause and effect. Even God, through much of history, expresses himself right to the point. Left-handed power, on the other hand, is, is paradoxical power. It looks more like weakness than it does power. Jesus was a lefty. See, it's an intervention that looks like non-intervention. It's turn the other cheek, go an extra mile power. If he takes your coat, give him your shirt power. It's the greatest among you is a servant. Let me tell you something about this kind of power. It's guaranteed to stop no one. Protect you from nothing. Could mean you get your face smashed in. It did for Jesus. But one thing it'll always do is preserve the relationship. Gentlemen, I know that you know that as you move as fathers, and I, I say this from what you've told me over the years, when your kids are small, right-handed power, direct. I've got their best interest at heart. If they're running for the road, I'm going to grab them by the scruff of the neck and pull them out of the road. I can control my kids as they're young. But you know what happens? I've got to move from right-handed power to left-handed power as they get older. Because I can only hope to influence them and maintain the relationship. So Jesus managed with his left hand. His kingdom, he said, will be built and populated through this paradoxical power. Good illustration is when they came to arrest Jesus. Do you remember what one of his famous disciples did? Yeah, pulled his sword and started swinging. And I don't think he was going for the ear. I, you know, I think he was going for the head, and the guy just ducked and fortunately didn't lose his head. And Jesus says, Peter, put it back. I've got all the right-handed power I need without your help. I could call legions of angels to my side if I wanted to. That's not the way my kingdom is going to come. Not my strategy this time around. I'm going to accomplish what I need to accomplish, not by taking control, but by letting go. I say that to you because I want to prep you for the, the jarring head-scratching, stomach-turning strategy that Jesus Christ asks his followers to employ as they go about pursuing their objectives. Now, you may say, I'm not interested in Jesus after this, and that's okay. I'd rather you know what Jesus will ask and say, I'm not interested, than say, oh yeah, let's, let's go follow Jesus and then find out, you know, he's a lefty and he expects me to be a lefty too. But let me tell you guys, that's exactly what is at the heart of this issue and this discussion we're having about competition. What does Jesus say the strategy is going to be as we go about trying to get what we want or protect what we've got? And those strategies are antithetical to the world. 
See, what does the world say you should do to your enemy? Beat him. Be victorious over him. Subjugate him. Jesus says you still love him. Jesus says, hey, you want to find your life? Guess what you have to do? Lose it. Now, does that sound radical to you? If it doesn't sound radical, I'm not speaking clearly. That should sound bizarre. Well, guys, it's going to sound just as bizarre when we get to how we should conduct ourselves in, in the competitive arena. I mean, gee, I don't know anything more dramatic than the call to love an enemy. Do you know of any more severe expression of a competitor than your enemy? And Jesus says, I want you to love them. So, fill in the blank. Great message. Great, not great, oh, Ed's great, but just what a great, simple way to sort of bring it down and make me face what it is that I'm living for. But let's say you've decided, I'm going to put God in there. Fill in the blank with God. How is that going to affect my view of competition? Or how is it going to affect the way I, I handle myself? in the competitive arena. Well, let me suggest, guys, and I put the same diagram on both boards. God says some interesting things about how I can know that I love him. How that I can, how can you know that you've put God in this blank? Somebody read 1 John 4, 7, and 8. First love John. comes from God. Anyone who loves before God and knows God. Okay, great. Let's hold it right there for a minute. Thank you. Okay. Love is from God. Okay? And anyone who loves is born of God. The indication that I have a relationship with God is the fact that I love other people. Read verse 20, please. Someone says, I love God, but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we have not seen? Okay, this is just foundational. But guys, the Bible says, you cannot claim to love God if you hate your brother. Another way to say it is, the validity of this relationship is going to be played out on the horizontal. Now, the vertical precedes the horizontal. You've got to get right with God. You've got to decide that he's in the right place before this becomes meaningful. But once that's in place, God says, guess what? You can't say that you love me if you hate anybody on this side. Not possible. So the validity of this is played out here. Unfortunately, we often think the validity of our relationship with God is in something like the religious disciplines. Well, I read the Bible and I go to church. And I, but you know what? Lots of people read the Bible and they don't have a relationship with God. Lots of people go to church or go to services or don't have a relationship with God. Lots of people pray and don't have a relationship with God. I mean, those don't mark it. This is how it's proven. It's not that you get a relationship with God by loving others just that you prove you have a relationship with God and in fact love God by the way we treat other people. So the subject of competition is important because in part, to a large part, the subject of competition is the subject of how I will treat people, right? If nothing else, when you're in a competitive arena, 
one of the issues at stake there is how are you going to treat the people you're competing with? Now, there's a corollary to this. Not only does my approach to people validate the reality of my relationship with God, but this is interesting. God takes it personally how I treat other people. Did you know that? Forgive me. Yes. Okay. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. Okay, that's, that's it. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. What an interesting statement. Hebrews 6, chapter 10. Now follow this. It's, it's, it's gonna, it's, the kicker's at the end, so, so try to follow train of thought. Chapter 10 or chapter 6, verse 10? Chapter 6, verse 10. Uh, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. Okay, stop there. He's about to tell them how they've shown love toward God's name. Go ahead. In having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. He says the way you showed love to God's name is by ministering to the saints. God takes it personally how we treat people. 1 Corinthians 8.12 Somebody had somebody volunteered for that? Oh, that's all right, Pepe. Uh, but, but when we sin and so against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, we sin against Christ. Wow. You sin against the brother, you sin against Christ. One last passage, if you're taking notes, I want you to jot down and ponder is Matthew 25, 31 to about 47. And without talking about the details, the setting, the understanding. That's the passage where it's at, the, it's at a judgment of the sheep and the goats. And as Jesus is separating the nations and judging the sheep and the goats, which is a figure of speech for people, the criteria for his judgment is, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. Do you remember this scene, those of you vaguely? And they come to him and they say, well, we never saw you hungry. We never saw you. We never visited you. And what does Jesus say? Fascinating. Inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that means, except I do know one thing. Jesus is saying he takes it very personally how we treat one another. So I would add a corollary to the golden rule, gentlemen, and that is do unto others as you would do unto God. Because you are anyway. That's why I have this dotted line. There's a sense in which what you do to others, you're really doing to your God. I can't block this off and say, well, my competition, my enemy, they're, they're not really part of my love for God. It's all connected. Any comments or questions up to this point? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to move very quickly to some application, and then hopefully there'll be some, uh, some discussion. The overriding principle, guys, for someone who's filling the blank with God when it comes to competition, if I understand the scriptures, and it's possible I don't, people, not the prize, should be my priority. 
people, not the prize, should be my priority. I'm either going to be results-centered or relationship-centered. Can't be both. It doesn't mean I ignore the results. It doesn't mean that, that there aren't other things that go into how I will compete. But the priority is people, not the prize. Uh, three passages I really want to direct you to here. And and we'll talk after we do. Philippians 2, 3 to 5. From fractional motive to contentiousness, strife, selfishness, over unworthy ends, or prompted by conceit and empty arrogance. Instead, in the true spirit of humility, lowliness of mind, let each regard the others as better than and superior to Thinking more highly of one another than you think of yourselves. Let each of you esteem and look upon and be concerned for not merely his own interests, but also each for the interests of others. Let the same attitude and purpose and humble mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Let him be your example in humility. That's too convicting. Let's go home. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, 31 to 33. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Whatever you end up concluding, Paul says the standard is, I'm not seeking my own good, I'm seeking the good of others. Don't look at me like that. I'm just a caddy, okay? I'm just pointing out where the flag is. <laughs> I can't... <laughs> I might be able to offer some strategies on how to get there, but... You know, I'm also a player, and I tell you, it's, it's, it, it's, not, it's not a formula that we're looking at here, guys. All I'm trying to identify for us is what we, wanna, what we will have to grapple with if we are going to fill the blank with God, and that the God that we fill it with is the God who represents himself in Jesus Christ, then this is what we're going to have to grapple with as we address the issue of competition. Finally, 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. to the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I am myself and not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Great. So guys, whether you're closing a multi-million dollar deal, whether you're negotiating a room rate or a purchase price, whatever the competitive arena, it seems like what the Bible is telling us is I must never sacrifice the relationship for the sake of the objective. 
And what's, what's hard for me is when I'm in a competitive environment, the objective becomes all important. Happened to me the other day. I was negotiating a price and I was all I was thinking about was how to manipulate and uh, position myself and posture my negotiation because I wanted to get the best deal. And I had totally forgotten that what was really important was the relationship. And thankfully, I got that in focus about two hours before I went into the thing and I changed my strategy completely. And I relaxed because I realized, you know, this isn't about me getting the price I want. This is about me preserving and hopefully investing in this guy's life to whatever degree God gives me. But I had to realize that the objective was not all important. The relationship is. There's never a good reason to ignore the best interests of my friends, my competitors, or even my enemies. You never can come up with a good reason to ignore the best interests of your enemies. Now, I don't know about you, but up until recently, I really didn't know any people that I considered my enemy. I mean, I knew people that I didn't like and didn't like me, but enemy, you know, they really wanted to hurt me and do away with me. Guess what? We got some. In my opinion, you will not put people ahead of the prize if you think that your survival is at stake in the competition, you think your needs are at stake. You won't put people ahead of the prize if you think your significance is at stake. If you look at competition as a way to derive a sense, you know, a good feeling about yourself, which we all get, I mean, you feel good when you win, you feel bad when you lose. But gentlemen, remember, I'm going to take a right here for just a minute. You are a slave. I'm a slave to the source of my significance. Wherever it is that I go to feel good, to feel like I have some worth, wherever it is I go for that sense of significance, I'm a slave to that. And when that runs dry, I've got to go find another tank. And I just become like a, like a, like a dog being led around by, on a chain, trying to find a place where I feel good about myself. It's very hard to live without some sense of significance. Very hard to go on living if you just feel worthless, right? It's a profound motivator. I guarantee you, whether you think it is or not, you are drawn, you are moving in your life to that place or that person that you, when you're with them or when you win that activity, you feel better about yourself. If your significance is at stake in the competitive arena, I don't think you'll put people ahead of the prize. You say, well, what do I do? Well, this isn't going to be, uh, we can talk about this later if you want. Where you find your significance becomes all important. But be that as it may. What about, uh, we mentioned people compete yesterday for, for pleasure, personal productivity. You know, we say, well, you know, competition is good because it brings out the best in me, right? And when I'm competing with you, I work harder and I do better. Sounds right, doesn't it? But who's the focus of that approach? Me. Not saying it's wrong, I'm just saying be careful because if that's your attitude, guess who's going to be number one? It's going to be what you can do for me. I just enjoy competition. I love the smell of the arena. I love the thrill of you know, getting in there. Guess what? Nothing wrong with finding pleasure in competition. Just be careful, because you're still focused on you 
And God says, if you're going to follow me, we've got a whole different reason for being here. Your personal pleasure, your personal productivity, it's not what it's about. Keep the relationship, number one, or relationships. Comments or questions? Observations, applications. I would probably say that um, I would agree with most of that, except during the moment of the competition. I have a really hard time struggling with um, thinking about loving the competitor and looking out for his better interest during the moment. I know in most sports, there's not much camaraderie, if any, during the event. But after, in some sports, there seems to be some power to that. Football, at the end of the game, they both converge and shake hands, head coaches, coaches, some even pray in the middle of the field. But during the moment, the tennis players serving, Roger Clemens pitching, us negotiating, it would be tough. And I, I don't know if it applies in that segment of time. Good, good comment, Jim. Let me, can, I, can I piggyback on it for a second? Let me, let me make the harder statement first. I think if we can identify a situation, a competition, where we say, you know what, I can't keep the focus that I'm supposed to keep, I think my responsibility is to pull out of the competition. Otherwise, I've just said there is a good reason or there is a reason when I don't have to obey and follow the example that Jesus set me. I'm saying there's a, there's a time when I really don't have to. That's what I'm saying. Now, having said that, let's make a distinction between gamesmanship and selfish ambition. And I don't know how to distinguish between the two. But, but even though I don't really want to focus just on sports, let's talk about sports. Mutual. Okay? One of the things that I think is, that, that is healthy about sports, for example, is it's a mutual competition. We agree that we're competing. We agree on the rules. And we agree on what good sportsmanship ought to look like. So we go at it hard because we've agreed that that's what we're going to do. It's not, I'm not being selfish by trying to get that ball over the, over, the, over the goal line. We've agreed that that's what both sides are going to try to do. So we go at it. Now, if in the process of that, I develop in my heart an improper attitude toward my opposition, I, I got a problem. But gamesmanship, no problem. Uh, it's like being you know, shrewd as a serpent, but innocent as a dove. I mean, nothing wrong with being a, a shrewd businessman. What's your motive, and how, do you, and how do you handle it, and why are you doing it? Those are all important. So we've got to define what shrewd is. But if your shrewdness is moved into selfish ambition, seeking your own interests rather than the interests of others, I'd say you've got a problem. Now, can I tell you when you've moved into that area? No. And the hard part is, I, I cannot formulize this for you. I cannot tell you when it's okay and when it isn't. But that's you know the good news, bad news that, that Ed brought out. The good news is God gives you a lot of freedom to make these choices. The bad news is he'll hold you accountable for every one. So what we do is we want to set the flag. We want to figure out what is the standard? What is God asking me to do? How does he want me to treat people? And then I got to figure out how I'm going to get there. 
Yeah, Chris. And then there's somebody else. Don't let me forget whoever. Chris. During the evening of September 11th, we went to a uh, prayer service at our church. And uh, one of the pastors began reading many of these passages. Now, as I can sit here and we can go through tennis matches and, and all rationalize them, I found myself incredibly angry as those passages were being read because I didn't want to hear it at that point. And so, how do you deal with that? I mean, I could have an easier time dealing with somebody and playing tennis with Sure. Them, but they deal with that piece of it. Say it again, Chuck. It's a form of severe mercy to be confronted with that which you, you violently disagree with, strongly disagree with. It is it, it is a severe mercy. Expand on that, please. Demonstration. Pardon? Demonstration of severe. You know, the fact that, that God knows where I am, the fact that he will bring things, confront me in 3D with things that I strongly disagree with, is an act of love. The, the, the act of uh, indifference or the, uh, the opposite would be to allow me to continue with the mindset that I have, unchallenged and unchecked. So it is an act of love to confront me with that which I strongly disagree with in 3D. That is a severe mercy. That is, a, that is a merciful act of God, although it is a severe mercy. You're on the road, 
the, the government doesn't want you to turn that road into a competitive environment, but you did. Something happened inside of you and me and the rest of us where we got competitive. And when you use the term competitive attitude, synonymous with a vicarious event, uh, not a sanction, but a vicarious form of competition, it's bad news. But the flip side of that, if you go into a sanctioned event, a sanctioned form of competition, and if you do not have a competitive attitude, that's bad stewardship. And I, I, I would come at it the other way and say, there's not evil in that. However, I would say, in getting in that mode, the RFP mode, I'll just use it as the example today, there still is a list of things that I cannot do as a believer. I can't talk poorly about the competition. I can't offer something that isn't truthful and, and straightforward, or I might have to pull out of that if my employer is pushing me for that. But on the other hand, I think I'm quite in God's will by taking that and being as competitive as we are able to within the realm of His, his you know, values and purpose and, and uh, guidance in my life. I think I need to be. Anything less than that is a problem. So if we create... Can I stop you though on that? Is that I mean, you're making a, a huge point there. I just want to... Can I kick... Before you go to your conclusion? Do I hear you saying that I need to be as competitive as I can be within the parameters of what God allows? That, that you're saying... I hear you saying that's my responsibility. That's what you just said. Is that what you mean? I think he's very on that. I mean, I swam competitively for years. And I knew if, if I didn't even train with an attitude of competitiveness to prepare for a sanctioned event, it would reflect poorly on God. Uh, I would look like a slacker. I look like a lazy bum in a world where we've already agreed on the rules. We're going in to compete. And the way I trained was a reflection on the Lord. Now, there were some things I had to avoid. Comparison with the evil. Okay, okay. Before you go, before you go, go on. I want to caution you about the concept of saying once I'm in it I need to go out 100% because you used a word that you, you said stewardship by definition guys what he means is that God has given us or through our understanding of the Bible's worldview, God has given us resources Time, talents, abilities, and so on and so forth. And it's like a portfolio. Okay? He says, this is, and he says, I want you to manage these. Okay? And, and give you a lot of freedom and latitude, and then we'll talk about how you, what you did with them when I see you. Um, don't want you to manage anybody else's. And by the way, the content of your portfolio is different from anybody else's in the world. It's unique. You know, can't standardize it. So when I get into the competitive arena, I would argue that stewardship isn't standard, which is what I hear you saying that everybody needs to go full out. Everybody needs to give 100%. I would argue to you that there are other things that determine my effort, my approach, how I handle a competition than just doing my best. That's not stewardship. That's just that's a, that's a blanket. You know, that's just a blanket statement, 100% or nothing. And I would suggest to you that there may be times and where I would say, you know what, 70% is what I need to do. Or because I don't, because winning isn't my ultimate objective. See, that's where we go back. If your ultimate objective is winning, you're jumping ahead to quick there. When I go into a competitive situation around the RFP, and I marshal my forces to put the very best proposal uh, in front of a target, 
Right. I'm basically being a good steward in the, in the employer-employee situation. I am, we haven't talked about Colossians 3.23, but I okay. Well, okay. But, but good steward by whose definition? Men or God? 3.23 is, is the guideline. And if the firm that I work for has a different view of my effort, that's a different discussion. That's not what I'm talking about here. But I am saying when I go into that RFP, what my employer expects is a best effort as far as I can understand that under Colossians 3.23, where I'm going to do it as under God. If for any reason they don't view that as, as an effort that fits into their corporate mission, then I don't belong there. I, you know, I just go somewhere else, and that's fine. But I don't hold that from putting the very best and most competitive proposal in front of a target in a sanctioned world, nor would I hold back from running faster than the person next to me to get the ball through the goal. I, that's just part of a sanctioned event. And you don't have a relationship at issue, as you have suggested with the, when you're negotiating your hotel room. Yeah, you could ruin a relationship at that point, but the theory of being able to go out and play in the, the soccer field with rules and following those rules carefully is that I'm not going to jeopardize a relationship with anybody. We're going to understand we all went into this under these rules. However, if I break the rules on the field, I may deserve to yellow card, I may deserve to be ousted, and, and that's a and, and We just agree to disagree that, that I seek the competitive arena as a lot riskier than you do. By the way, the issue about your boss, let me just, so I don't get misunderstood on that. Guys, if your boss tells you that he wants a certain kind of, or your, your company tells you they want a certain kind of performance, that's an issue of authority, and you're required to do that. I mean, that's, that's, that's not a, a personal decision. You've submitted yourself to that boss. If you can't do what he says, you need to go to him and see if you can negotiate, or you need to leave. But I'm not advocating here that you just take all decisions into your own hands. If you're working for somebody, or you agree to do a job for somebody, and they want X amount of effort, if it's measurable, then you give them X amount of effort. But but to me, that's not a that's not a that's not a stewardship. I don't have a stewardship call there. I, it's already been made for me. You're my boss. I have to do what you tell me to do. If the job is to produce 100 units per hour and I do 100, it's fair. But if your job is to be the person, the instrument of that company that deals with competitive situations, it, it almost sounds as if you're saying, don't take that job. And I'm saying some of us in this room actually live in that world every day and have to deal with it as a norm part, as an athlete in a sport would. I, I mean, I dealt with this as a, coming from a non-believer to a believer in, in, in my swimming, and I had to recalibrate why I was there. What was I going to do? Who's my audience, as Tom was saying the other night? But I, I didn't sense God was telling me, don't swim. You know, to hang up the speedo. That wasn't the message. It was rather, change who your audience was, change who your motivation was, the way you prepare, though, still is important, but you're going you're gonna to do it for, for the Lord now, not for your own selfish purpose. You're not going to do it to gain an advantage over somebody else. Okay. Uh, well, would you agree that, that doing it for the Lord, Mike, and then we'll, we'll move on because I don't want to get everybody stuck in, in, in a rut with us, but doing it for the Lord doesn't mean just now I'm going to give God the trophy when I'm done. It means I'm going to look to God for direction as to how I go about the competition. Would you, we agree with that, right? Okay, so then let me make this second point, and then I want to address Sam. It should be determined by what God wants me to do rather than by what the competition dictates I should do. 
Because if I feel I'm accountable to God, ultimately, it's not just the competition that's going to define how I behave, what my priorities are. Now, if I didn't have a God to be accountable to, that probably would be. I just find out what the competition is doing because my goal is to better them. The problem is, is if I'm not careful, then the competition starts defining my priorities. Because if all I'm trying to do is move in relation to somebody else, who's now the Lord of my life, so to speak? The competition. Because all I'm doing is trying to keep up with them. And I'm, I'm moving through life relative to somebody else. And God says doing it for me doesn't mean move relative to somebody else and then, you know, give me the credit when it's over. It means if I tell you not to move, and you say, how's he going to do that? Subjective. Hard to know. If I tell you not to move, I want you to be willing to be lapped in the race of life by even somebody you could beat otherwise. So, number one, people are the priority, not the prize. And number two, my decisions are ultimately going to be determined by what I think God wants me to do, not what the competition is doing. The difference here is between short-term and long-term gains. I mean, the shrewdest competitor or the shrewdest negotiator is the one who sets up a win-win situation so he continues a relationship that can go on and be profitable for him in the future. I mean, if you, if you narrow down to a single competition, yes, then you really are focused on an individual item, but if you narrow, if you put it in broader terms, and this country doesn't tend to do that, we don't tend to look very far out in the future, then you will focus on that single item and not realize that there is a whole future of relationship that is available if you if you play it that way looking at the whole future instead of focusing on the individual competition yeah that's really interesting good good point and observation and can i piggyback on that one too you know there are really three approaches to this there's the i gotta win you gotta lose approach and then there's the more modified popular well let's have a win-win right let's both win Interesting that the flag, if you will, the pin, is at neither point. The pin that I, the pin that I've got to grapple with in this is not I win, you have to lose. Not hey, let's both win. It's what I'll lose so you can win. Guys, serving, very popular word, isn't it? I mean, the service. Everybody's talking about serving, servant leadership, servant. You know what the difference between serving and being a servant is? People serve in the marketplace because they think it's in their best interest, right? This is going to get me further along. Being a servant, whose interest do you have at, at, at heart? The person you're serving. A lot of people excited about serving as far as it accrues gain to me. Very hard to find somebody who says, I'd like to serve, be a servant. Because that means I'm looking out for your success, not for mine. It's your gain at my expense, not my gain at your expense. It's not even our gain at our expense. It's even further. I'm just saying that's what Jesus is calling us to grapple with. No, but back to the workplace. We're talking. We're talking attitude. First of all, okay. I'm not saying that I don't think the Bible says you can't be in a competitive arena. Okay, you can be in an arena where your winning means someone else losing. That's okay. All we're trying to figure out is how do I conduct myself in that arena, 
And what I think Sam is on to is he's on to what we were talking about last night, and that is, who do I ultimately believe is meeting my needs, Sam? Who's giving me the victory? See, I mean, who gave Israel the victory when they decided that the special forces operation was, you know, uh, walking around the city seven times with trumpets and lanterns? I mean, that's ridiculous. But guess what? God said, what that did is it showed you that it, it isn't about, you didn't get the victory. I got it. And so for the Christian who is grappling with how do I handle this, he's got to remember that the win or the loss in the marketplace or anywhere ultimately is God. So if I just focus on him, he'll take care of the results. And all of a sudden now I realize my survival, my needs are not at stake in the arena. If I don't believe that, yes. I'm going to say, forget this. But if I realize, now, I'm not saying you have to believe that, but I'm saying what the scripture calls me to believe is that's not what's at stake. Go ahead. Well, just, I think that one of the things that you have to keep in mind is you're going into anything is what your objective is. And uh, if that first line up there is your objective, you have to be really clear on that because you get into situations that it's very easy to it's very easy to, to forget what your objective is. There's a saying that when you're up to your ass and alligators, it's very difficult to remember that your objective was to drain the swamp. And so when you get into when you get out into a competitive any sort of you know competitive uh, or what you deem to be a competitive uh, relationship, uh, it's once you get into it, it starts to become, you know, unless, you, unless you are extremely clear on what your objective is, it becomes, it, it kind of, the, the, what your actions will do, and I think that's what you're talking about, what your actions, your actions may start to waver a little bit, and you may start to, you know, to, to run around, you know, obstacles and things like that, because you're not real clear on what, on what you actually set out to do when you woke up and got out of bed and walked out the door. I think that, you know, you may you know, want to make that your top priority, but when you get out the door, if you're not real clear on that and you don't have a real clear set of guidelines on what that looks like, that the decision-making process, as soon as you walk out the door, tends to change. And I think that, and I think that you know, that's basically where we're going with the danger of competition. And I think that everybody would agree that, you know, it's easy. You know, when you get out there, it's easy to get on the phone and think that you're going to lose something if you don't, you know, hit first. Uh, or if you don't come under a storm. I think that that's, that's really what, you know, that's really what we're, what we're, what we're wrestling with here, is you know, making sure that your objective is clear. And what exactly is the objective? Yeah, I mean, yes, thank you. That was excellent. I, you know, Tommy, maybe think, listen, the reason a lot of marriages are, are on the ropes is because of fear that if I don't compete well and effectively, I'm not going to have my needs met. And so, honey, I'm sorry, I won't be home until 8.30 or 9 o'clock. Now, who's defining my priorities? The competition. And my fear that I won't compete successfully. And all I'm saying, guys, is don't let the competition define and set your priorities. You and you won't be able to do that. I, that you'll be, that'll be impossible unless you realize who's, gonna, who's committed himself to meeting your needs. God's not saying, hey, your needs are important. Don't think about money. Don't, God says, no, they are important. I'll take care of it. Matthew 6. I'll care for you. You think about me and my kingdom. And I'll take care of you. Yeah, but it might not be what I want it to be. So I'm going to go back and, and crank it up. 
Today I was recently in the booth eating a deal, and it's this is small peanuts for the guys out here, but we were we were a million dollars apart. Okay, now how do I know, you know, if it's eleven million or ten million? And so I, how do I know which? I, I sense it ought to be eleven. He senses it ought to be ten. I'm holding for eleven. He's going for ten. How do I know where God is in this deal? Is God is God a ten million or is he eleven million? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know that is. I mean, I don't. But I sense that the the, the, the what I'm, I'm holding for eleven. Okay. Now the thing that the only criteria by which I know how do I negotiate this deal, and this is what I've used, is that at any point during the negotiation or after the negotiation, I can share with them my testimony and my love for God and my walking by the truth of that book, and it have validity with him. He says, Yeah, I can see that. But if he says, ha, you're a phony, then somewhere in that negotiating process, I really blew it. And I revealed to him that the Bible was not my criteria, and the love of God did not constrain me to follow him. Now, is God for 10, or is God for 11? I didn't know then, I don't know now. But I do know that the way I conduct myself, and the, thing, and the, and the motives that I use, and the means that I use, cannot contradict what I say is the bedrock values in my life. I, I just have to go with that. Excellent. Yeah, you do. And I can tell you, I'm embarrassed to tell you, Chuck, that more often than not, I've come out of certain negotiations or conversations, and I hope they didn't ask me about Jesus, because I was embarrassed about the way I conducted myself. I was so aggressive, and I was so forceful, and I wanted my way so badly that I just, I just hope the issue of God didn't come up. They asked me what I did, I'd tell them I was a consultant. Um, hitchhiking what you just said, I think for me this uh, fits real well. Last night, you ended up with the concept of that God determines the process outcome, not my competitiveness or my lack of competitiveness. I really like that. Um, in my occupation, I'm frequently uh, place in a situation which is quote-unquote competitive, <coughs> competitive with others and for me to be able to provide for my family I need to get occasionally this particular uh, <coughs> process and if I don't get that particular process eventually I no longer provide for my family so there's a biblical principle that um, you read this uh, had us read this morning that I think really applies. Because in a situation in which I'm looking at presenting my services versus somebody else presenting their services, there's the, there's the opportunity to get sort of just competitive enough that you dig the other person. Or you say something that's not quite true. You make a promise that isn't quite, that you can't quite um, keep. You know it, but the competitive juices are there or the need to get that particular um, job. Right there. And it, it's this one here, it's in Hebrews 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work. Hmm. And the love which you have shown toward his name. And I guess just trying to check here on trusting, I think that's really important. Um, it's very important for me. I need a biblical principle that allows me to relax. God's going to provide, and it's not how competitive I was or wasn't. But there is a group, I'm going to just say one more time here. Um, 
my job is what we're talking about here today. That's what I do for a living, and uh, uh, it is synonymous to me with the sports world. Um, I know I don't go to work to earn a living. That's the one area I would disagree with you. That if you feel you got to hit even a couple of these a year to make a living, then you're risking uh, putting that environment ahead of God. You don't go to work to earn a living if you have a, a heavenly Father who promised to take care of you. You go to work for some other reason, and that's to be an ambassador for Christ. And and as Chuck was saying, that's what you got to stewardship is you're facing competition. But I have no hesitation, on the other hand, preparing myself and my team for competition. I have no hesitation teaching them and training them in the skills of good responses, in the skills of godly relationship building, and, and those things that basically allow me to fulfill my responsibility in my organization. Um, but I, I do agree, I just really connect with what Chuck is saying here. And when I say stewardship, the fact that my firm wants to win something is a higher authority than I am. My job is to go in and deal with that opportunity for them as an employee. But not to do it as under men, but to do it as under God. That to me is the bottom line of sanctioned competition. Goodness, great. Great at what guys thank you very much. You're totally lucky. Could we be talking about also the uh, just the idea of professionalism and professional objectivity? In other words, um, <clears throat> hitchhiking on this idea of the sanctioned game. Uh, I think we all know at times when we're emotionally way out of bounds. And uh, something other than a coolness and an objective gamesmanship has entered into this formula. And is that what we're really trying to speak to here, the idea that uh, the flesh is with us, the heart is deceitful, and uh, at times we emotionally go for the jugular when it's not necessary. Uh, when it's not necessary at all. I remember. I remember speaking about this quite regularly when we were uh, when we were in Vietnam, just trying to maintain some sort of professional objectivity in the midst of that chaos that was over there. And uh, there were those times when we. Uh, were too emotionally engaged in the process to be objective, and this is the kind of thing that led to me lie and some other things. So I just throw that up for what's worth the uh, the idea of the professionalism there that holds the emotion and the excesses and the egregious offenses at bay, and still allows you to proceed with your responsibilities. Yeah, and that's I think an inherent danger in a, in any kind of competitive competitive environment, don't you? I mean, would you agree that just the doesn't mean you can't be there, but just recognize the potential for my emotions to overtake my priorities and my objective and my purpose profound. And if I can't handle it, guys, better to get out of it than to stay in it and sin. Let me ask Tom, would you read Hebrews 13, 5 and 6? This is kind of a concluding thought on Sam's question, which I think is incredibly relevant, and maybe a summary as to how you can be freed up in the competitive arena. Did you read that? Stay away from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you, I will never forsake you. That is why we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, so I will not be afraid. 
What can mere mortals do to me? Chris had to leave, I think, but can I comment on Chris's question? Do you remember Chris's? And then I'll wrap, I'll wrap up on this. Chris said, in light of September 11th, how do, I, how do I live with these commands to love my enemies? How do I grapple with that? And I've thought a lot about that myself. And I, I would say the only answer that I've been able to come up with is I want to be with Jesus. And if that's where Jesus is going, that's, that's where I'll go. In the Gospel of John, gentlemen, chapter 6, Jesus had a little time of sermonizing. He had a huge crowd at the beginning of the chapter. And he started talking about what it would mean to follow him. You know what happened by the end of the chapter? Everybody had dispersed. They said, literally, these are hard statements. Who can deal with them? And probably just in a matter of moments, what was this crowded, jammed field all of a sudden, the only thing left were papers blowing around and cups and 12 guys off in the corner. And Jesus walks over to his disciples and says, so will you, guys, will you guys go away too? And Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's the way I feel. I don't know where else to go. I don't find this easy. Simple, but not easy. But I want Jesus. And if this is where he's going, i, I got to follow him. Yeah, Chuck? Dave, it is a, um, as I said earlier, it is a loving act of God to confront you with that which you strongly disagree with. Because the, the worst thing in my life is to continue to live not based on the truth. And I don't, if I don't like it or not, if I don't like what you said, if I don't like how you seem to imply, imply it's going to play out, I, I got a problem that I've got to wrestle through or I will never enjoy the contentment and peace of God. I've got to wrestle with these things. I've got to confront them and face them and, and uh, apply them in my own life in the, in, the arena of, in the arena of obedience. I've got to be doing to the best of my ability what I think God would have me to be, regardless of how my plan. And if I do not, if I refuse to confront that and refuse to deal with that, then I, I renege on and forfeit the peace and the, and the love of God that I can the contentment that I can enjoy day by day by day. So, I mean, the, the ball is in my court. i got to wrestle with it. Gentlemen, may I just point out there's a difference between being a Christian and becoming a Christian. This weekend we've been talking about what it's like to be a Christian. We've talked about life with a Christian lens. Life through the Bible's lens. Please don't confuse that with becoming a Christian. I'm not going to preach at you. I just want to... Make sure that you understand that the way you become a Christian is not by acting like one. So don't leave here with that thought. If you're considering Jesus, you're considering Christianity, most people have, that I run into have the misunderstanding the way you become a Christian is start acting like one. Not the case. If you want to know more about that, ask the guy that brought you or you know, ask anybody. But please know there's a distinction. Second, as you're pondering these things and you're wondering... What's true? What isn't? What's the right filter system? Can I direct you? You don't have to turn there, but let me read to you some words of Jesus from John 7, 17, if you want to jot it down. You may be wondering, how do I know? How do I know if Jesus, if the Bible is true, and therefore I ought to buy into it? 
verse 17 of John 7 says, If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. If you want to know whether this teaching is of God, guys, you've got to first be willing to do it. So you come to this information and you say, I'm not making a decision, but if this is God, I'm his. If you're coming to this and saying, well, you know, I'll pick and choose, you'll probably never know, you'll never be sure. So God says to us, or Jesus said, hey, it starts with, if there's a God, I'm willing to belong to him. If there's a God, by definition, whatever he tells me to do, I'm willing to do it. And at that point, you'll recognize the truth of what Jesus is saying. But if you haven't come to that point, it'll probably remain fuzzy to you. One last thought. The Bible, or Jesus, describes the kingdom of God like a pearl merchant. Pearl merchant travels around to find valuable pearls. He says, the kingdom of God is like that pearl merchant who stumbles upon a pearl of great value. And he sells everything he has, gives up all his pearls, just to have that one. And why do I say that? I want you to know that when we talk about filling in the blank with God, becoming a Christian and then being a Christian, God isn't saying, I want you to give up what's valuable for what's virtuous. That's not what he's saying. It's not an exchange for something very valuable just for virtue, being a better person. God is saying, I'm inviting you to give up what is worthless for that which is of infinite value. He's not asking you not to want the most valuable thing in life. He's just redefining it for you. He's saying, it's me. It's my kingdom. And the choice, then, is not valuable for virtue. It's worthless for eternal value. Um, I really, really appreciate your patience with me. We had um, some good interaction. Uh, we'll take a break. and Ed, um, Let me just suggest to you that God's character will not require me to violate his commandment in order to win. He doesn't, that's not a requirement. Um, or to meet my needs. So as I said to Sam a moment ago, when my daughter says to me, Dad, why do you shade the truth? The only answer I can give her is because I'm just not willing to trust God to keep his promise. That's it. There's, for me, there's no other answer. So I love the game. I love the competition. My problem, as David mentioned, I love to compete so much that I get into the heat of the battle. And some of you guys have seen me in that environment. Get in the heat of the battle, and, and I lose. How did you say it? At, at the moment of competition, I get caught up so much in the competition that I, I should take myself out of the game because I'm no longer interested in 
the relationship with the men that I'm there with, and I'm clearly stepping outside the box that God said I can function within without being wrong. So that was my comment. I throw it out to, to David as well and open up the questions. We had a lot of information this weekend. We got about 30 or 35, 45 minutes, as long as you want, actually, I'm sure, to let's interact. Game, how do you improve yourself at it? It's a great question, David. <laughs> that was a smart bomb with your name on it. <laughs> if I take myself out of the game, how do I improve? Why is it important for me to my to improve? Is it is that my, the purpose? Well, yeah, to take yourself out of the game. Obviously, you're not doing a great job at it, and that's the objective, is to do it God's way. Mm -hmm. So without being in the game and staying in the game, next time you know better what to avoid and what to say and what to do. So if you do pull yourself out of the game, how do you continue to do that improvement process? Generally speaking, when I pull myself out of the environment where I feel myself getting out of line, it's not because I'm not good enough. It's because... I find myself stepping over the line that permits me, as Chuck said, to be able to say, by the way, have I, have I told you where my heart is? And can I just share a few minutes with you about what I believe? And have the guy say, gee, you know, that flies in the face of what I've just witnessed. I don't think I have to, uh, it's not an issue of me getting better at it. It's an issue of me getting my motive right and clarifying what it is that I'm willing to do and feel as though I've given it my best and trust God to, to the results. Because I don't believe God, I, I don't believe I can win if God says you're not going to. And he certainly is going to reward me for embarrassing him and stepping outside of what he's permitted me to do without degrading him effectively. I think is what I'm going to do. Yeah, there you go. I, and I think it's important to be in the game. You know, these values that we believe in and, and we try to instill in whatever it is that we're doing, uh, you know, sometimes there is a difference between when you get in that situation and actually doing them, and without being in the situation, that's my question, how do you improve upon it? And, uh, you know, maybe it's taking a step back, and what's he going to say? No, I was just going to say, when we talked about contracts and, uh, and being in a competitive environment, and it doesn't really matter whether you're well, I guess uh, you know a realtor selling a house, or you know you're in an environment where you're going to put in a uh, in a proposal. Uh, I would think that your objective, obviously, you know, one of the objectives is to is to get the contract. But what you're trying to do during that time is to provide that customer with what you truly believe to be the best solution to their situation, and hopefully. If you do provide them with the best solution for their situation, they're going to recognize that and you're going to win the contract. There may come times when you see the other guy's contract 
And you look at it and you say, geez, I didn't think of that. And that's really a better deal for the for the client. Now, do you at that point try to convince them that yours is better and slant things? Or do you go back to the drawing board and maybe and you may not be able to uh, go back and resubmit or change your proposal around? What exactly do you do at that point? Do you try and convince them that your contract is better even though you don't believe it is? You know, if you get two bids on a house and another realtor brings in a, a bid on a house that is different, but in your own heart you believe it's clearly better than yours. You know, how do you, you know, how do you handle that situation? And as far as, uh, as far as whether, you know, God decides on your, on what you get and what you don't get, I think that, you know, most guys in here have had the experience where they put in what they believe to be, in their heart, the best contract and not gotten the deal. And yet at other times they put in a contract where they don't think it was the best contract overall, but yet they have got the deal. How exactly do you go about explaining those results? That the best contract doesn't always win. Or in a competitive sense, we were talking about it, if you're a swimmer and you train for the Olympics and you are the top swimmer in the country, and you go there on that day and you're in the fifth lap of a 10 lap race and you get a cramp, that basically stops you from winning that competition. And maybe even the top three guys get cramps on it one day, and the guy who was, you know, uh, a long shot for the race wins that race. How exactly do you explain, you know, those results? And did you really have any control over that when it gets down to it? You could prepare, and it does, I'm not even considering what your attitude is going into a, uh, a situation like that. You could prepare your best and still not, and be the best, you know, on a playing field. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, when you get into, you know, at the Super Bowl, you could, have, you could go into the Super Bowl with the best record, an undefeated record, and lose the title of the Super Bowl. And how do you explain that? So, you know, I mean, for me, you know, I believe that, you know, God determines, you know, what you, the, your results. You know, and you can go in and he kind of looks at, you know, where your heart is at, what your motive was, and try to go along the line. But you're not necessarily going to, uh, you know, do your best and get the contract or win the game or do anything else. It's, that once you get to that, you kind of get the feeling that you actually do depend on God for your needs. And you know, See, if you think if you think you make the difference, you'll fudge. Exactly. <laughs> if I think I make that difference, then in a moment of weakness, time when I don't think God's paying attention, maybe He's on holiday. I look at my buddy Terry and we go have a beer and in a weak moment I get him to confirm me. Oh, well now I know I'm okay. Because I got another guy that's not gonna confront me and hold me accountable and take me to task and say that's wrong for whatever the reason may be. Now I'm just look out, I'm gonna I'm going anywhere. That's just the way I am. I'm, that's a sinful man. And that's what I am. That's why I need what we're talking about. And if this lecture could certainly apply to your home life too, your wife, your kids, the challenges, the competition with your wife and your kids, this competition of trying to get a free night, what you need to do. I just think that um, who gets the last piece of chocolate cake? Just, just feed the kids really realize the model, I think you have a 
much better harmonious, very balanced, grounded relationship at home. The other thing is important to realize that we're not trying to figure out what a Christian negotiation looks like. We're trying to find, figure out how to base my life on eternal values. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that'll play out. But, you, but we're not just trying to figure out how to describe a Christian negotiation. Yeah, that, um, when we talked about, uh, we brought up about negotiating um, and savory relationship, I was thinking about if you're negotiating with somebody and you have no relationship to the person at all, then what the heck, you know? I mean, just go for it. But uh, when, if you've got in your life God, then uh, that doesn't work. You know, it's, it's the ultimate is, uh, regardless of whether you know the person or not, or have a relationship with him or not, then you've got to say it. Or build it. Be called to a, a hard task. Uh, I'm not in a competitive world, guys. I'm retired. Probably the oldest member here. So the verses you gave us up there are, are verses that are calling us to something that we're incapable of doing. And that's being something that we are not. And that's humility. I'm going to quote a little thing I've got from Paul Hennigan many years ago, but before that, uh, Roy Lauren said this, the Christian experience is not the achievement of a human effort, but a divine effect. Jesus never told men to try to live as he lived by imitation, but to live or to let him live in them by divine initiative. I see the miracle of the indwelling spirit as the source that's going to provide the humility of Christ in my life. And Hendrickson said once in one of these conferences, and I wrote it down so good, and you've probably all heard it, but it needs to be repeated. Only the secure are humble. Only the redeemed are secure. Only the desperate are redeemed. Only the depraved and those who milk are truly desperate. <laughs> Hard call, guys. I struggle with the day and I'm not even in a competitive world. But I am in a competitive world. And I want the initiative of the enrolling Holy Spirit to have control. And that's exchanging my will with his every moment. comes out right or wrong, and, and, and I tried to go by that, I've never been let down. So in other words, I can lose, but I go, I really feel that's, I went in, I did what I was supposed to do, and and there's a peace in that. You, you may lose the deal, you may, I mean, there can be consequences to it in this temporal world, but, but it is really comforting if you feel you put the Lord in that decision afterwards, and I know a lot of us are like that, but it's, it's never let me down when I've gone into it 
with that right approach. Even though that the short term, you know, and they have lost short term, there, there's a comfort, there's a piece of that. And that's, that's part of that, knowing that you did what you went in and planned to do. Yeah. You know, you, and then, you know, the rest is up to somebody else uh, feeling for Yeah. And if you feel good about the way you play the game, then I think you'll come away satisfied whether you win or lose. I mean, you'd rather win, huh? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, good point, Thank you. Yeah, I like to stand a little bit on that too. Um, <clears throat> as far as saying that you know you go into a situation in a competition, purely speaking, in a business sense of, of competition, that um, you go in with the attitude that you're really lifting up to God, or you're going in to glorify God, um, and and do it for His glory. Then the saying goes, "If God is for us, then who can be against us?" So you you really shouldn't look at it even as a a win-lose situation, but rather your analogy, maybe the enhancing and the decreasing of your size of the pie. Therefore, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us? As a Christian man, glorifying God in a competitive world, we really have no competitors because we're above the competition. And I mean, even using the word competition is wrong because you're, you're not looking at it as a win-lose situation, but rather your predestined path in God's view of your life. He finds the victors. The issue is we get to play the game any way we want. We get to compete any way we want. But we will have to give an account. But how do you go in and compete? Luke, you're as a competitive guy as I know. How do you go in and compete when you know you don't have any impact on the outcome? That's a tension that is a struggle for me, i got to tell you. But the fact is, for me to presume that I do have an effect on the outcome presupposes that my will and my, benefit and my actions supersede God's will. Then he isn't sovereign. If he's sovereign, then my actions have no impact on the outcome. And that's what puts most people on tilt. I mean, how presumptuous for us to even think that we make a difference. It presupposes God's not sovereign. Good question. Why go to work? Henriksen spoke on that one last year. You can't say, you know, I have free will so I can influence God a little bit and uh, therefore I can be and help to win. And then say, oh, it's all in God's hands. It's one or the other. Well, I mean, it, you get, we were talking tonight, I mean, people have gifts from God and they have talents. I mean, if your gift is to throw that ball 100 miles an hour, or your gift is to run the 100-yard dash in less than 10 seconds, then by all means, bury your opponent. But bring the glory to God. And don't, for a second, think that by giving it 100% and winning, that you had a role in winning. I mean, it's, regardless of the outcome, you're supposed to give it all you got, but God's going to determine the outcome, not you. Compete all you want, but understand that your effort means nothing in the outcome. If that's true, and you hindered a relationship, was the word you used uh, hindered? Or you sacrificed a relationship? 
then you've compounded the error. Would you agree? Yeah. Is that, I mean, I, I'm speaking in a sense that you, or, you know, you're, you're a Christian man and you're living, you know, you're yeah. weary of doing something like that. And you're, you're careful to, I mean, if somebody's a sore loser, they're a sore loser, you can't do anything about that, but you're not going to lose to make them feel better. And I think that if you have a God-given gift, the person we were talking about last night was Lance Armstrong. If God wasn't behind his competitive spirit 100%, that was nothing less than a miracle. I mean, three consecutive Tour de France's was one of the most enduring sport events in the world after going through chemo and probably weighing, what, 110 pounds and beating testicular cancer. He buried the competition so severely that this year the Tour de France is changing the course of the race so it's more competitive to the next Can I ask a question I'd like to ask? Sure, could you give us in just two or three minutes what your behavior or attitude and outcomes for the session or expectations for the session were? I had none. <coughs> so. objectives that you wanted to surface more than just discussion or more than just the exchange of ideas and opinions. And I just was wondering if you wanted to hazard pulling a pen on that hand grenade here and just giving us something to think about a little more. <laughs> if I haven't pulled a pen, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I won't be able to find it in the next 30 seconds. Uh, no, I I appreciated the give and take, and uh, I only wish that, from my side, that my thinking was clearer so that, you know, from my side of the discussion and interaction, I could uh, be more helpful. But I think sometimes uh, in the last couple hours, we have money to watch. But other than that, I've, I've enjoyed it tremendously. Thank you for the, uh, the opportunity, because I will go away and continue to think and pray. And I would just try to maybe help you out with an illustration. In baseball, you know, you take batting practice, you subdued your body, you're going in the World Series, you're the absolute best hitter that there is. Your responsibility is to get up to the plate. You cannot control whether or not the guy is going to throw an inside curveball at you or an outside a low ball or right down the sweep plate. You just don't know where the ball is going to come. But it's your responsibility to get up to bat and use all the God-given talents you have hit that ball either down third baseline or butt down third baseline or out of the park. It's your responsibility to do that. But you cannot control the outcome. You can do everything you can to be prepared for what he's going to throw you, but you can't determine exactly what the outcome is going to be. Because you may have thought the butt down third baseline was the best thing to do, but your shot down right field is better than the butt. So, but you got to get up to bat. It's a fool who does not get up to the bat. You've got 
get up to that. God's given you certain talents, certain abilities. You know, between the chalk lines, there's certain rules. You don't lie, cheat, you know, all those other things that we all believe in. God's get up to that. And I think uh, the outcome is God. I really believe that to be true. It's helpful for me in a bad situation. Earning a living and your work is the least of the problems that you're going to have to come to terms with with respect to who controls it. If I have to choose to sit on a street corner and beg for food versus to lose my child, I'll keep my child and I'll beg for food. And you know, we're not talking about whether or not God has the right to take back that which he's given me, which is one of my children. The guy that was here yesterday morning and had to leave was not focused on how he was going to feed the family. He was focused on the woman he'd been married to for 40-some years. And uh, whether you lose your parents, your brothers and sisters, or your kids. And Walt lost his first son at the age of seven to leukemia. And when I asked him one time what was one of the more difficult things, not the most, but one of the more difficult things that you had, had to endure in your life, he said, holding my son after chemotherapy, having him ask me, Daddy, can you make it stop hurting? Saying, I had to say, no, I can't make it stop hurting. The tension of who's going to meet your needs economically and put food on the table. Guys, God just keeps up in the ante. Where are you going to put your chips? He's faithful. He meets our needs. He provides for us. Not just in the financial arena, but in all of those arenas. The longer you pursue that relationship that David talked about, which is vertical, the more he's going to force you to come to terms with the horizontal. So just get ready. I mean, this is the one that's nearest and dearest to our hearts because this is where we're living right now, and that's how do I pay the rent? You know, the market's been off for 18 months. It stinks. I said to my buddy Terry two days ago, how are you doing? He said, great. And I said, you selling houses? He said, yeah, it's great. <laughs> We're selling houses. We tend to identify with that because we're competitors. Want to take us home? You know, the little two voices, one says, just be quiet. That was great. The other one says, oh. Faith is acting like what God says is true is true. That's all it is. Nothing mysterious about it. God speaks and he says, would you believe me, please, and act accordingly. It's the essence of a relationship, right? Someone tells you something, promises you something, you trust them, you believe them, you act accordingly. How much of a relationship is someone wife tells you something you don't believe. God says, without faith, it's impossible to please me. So please, believe me. Believe what I tell you. Act accordingly.